Good morning, Mission View Church. Isn't it good to have a worship team that week after week, they are faithfully up here uh, using the gifts that God has given them. And I know for me today, every word of every song, I felt like I was just trying to grab onto it. And uh, it, it applies so much to our life. So I'm very thankful for the team that we have up here. We are in the midst of a series called Counter Culture. And we are going to be evaluating the issue of abortion today. So I want us to, to really think and wrap our minds around what God has to say about this topic. I want to tell you a story. She was a good girl. She was a church girl. She was raised with good morals. She knew right from wrong. In fact, after high school, she became a mentor to a lot of other students. But there was one night... There was one act, there was one lapse of judgment, and now this young lady found herself pregnant. For this brief moment in history, the, her life seemed to be passing so quickly, and she, did, she was whirling out of, it was in, in, in a, a state of confusion, and she didn't know where to turn, she didn't know what to say. All her life she had held to a life of purity and felt like she had the purity ring. She had the, the things that would, she would hold on to to remind her. And yet here she was in a place where it was totally opposite of where, where she wanted to be. She started questioning things. What should I do in this situation? Should I abandon this child? It would be the easiest thing. What am I thinking? How could I even think of, of, about abandoning this child? All this confusion was going on within her mind. Who will help me? Who can I go to? If I go to my parents, they're going to be devastated. If I go to my pastor, he's going to be disappointed. And if I go to God, well, he knows it already. Where do I turn? See, I think for, for all of us, there's times in our life where our convictions are tested and we are faced with the need for the grace of God. We are faced with the need for the gospel, the good news of Christ in our own life because there's moments of crisis, there's moments of, in, of decisions that were poor decisions that we come to and we say, what do I do? I have made a mess of my life. For this young lady, this was one of those times. I sat down with this individual several weeks ago. She was one of my old students. And she was willingly said I could share her story under the umbrella of anonymity. Now, I will say that as she sat there, I could tell how painful it was for her to recall the details of her story. And yet, as I looked at her life, I saw the person that was down the road who had experienced God's forgiveness, God's healing, and God's restoration. She was, she's a mom. She's a prosperous in her marriage. She's doing well. And if she was among us, you wouldn't even know it. She would be that person that you are meeting on Sunday morning. You're shaking hands. How are you doing? You're smiling. You got the face going on. And you, you, my, my family's around me. Things are going well. And things are going well in her life. But little do we realize how much of a story 
sometimes people have. Now, when she had sinned and when she had done all these things, I wish I could say that it was all a happy ending because people were so gracious. The body of Christ was just so gracious. That wasn't the case in this, case, in this situation. I wish I could say that she only made one mistake, but that's not the case. And I wish I could say that she just prayed a prayer and all was better, peace, love, and happiness from that moment, moment on. But there were serious, serious consequences in her life. I will tell you why there was a happy ending, and there is a happy ending. There is joy in her life now. It's because she turned to Jesus, the very one that we just sang about, and she submitted herself 100% to him. Not like Christianity, oh yeah, God's out there, I'll kind of go through the Christian motions. No, no. She got to the place where she clung, to, she clung on to Christ. She held on to him with all of her might. She got into God's word. She started renewing her mind. She allowed God's grace to pour over her and allowed the forgiveness of God. And what was amazing is that God came alongside of her, as Jesus often does, and he pours and lavishes his grace upon you, and he gives forgiveness. He gives grace. He gives mercy. That's our Jesus. He doesn't want to condemn. He wants to forgive, but it takes a heart that's repentant, that's willing to come to him. My friends, this is what the gospel does. The gospel comes and restores. It heals. It forgives. Today we are going to talk about abortion. And we're not just going to talk about the evils of, the, of abortion because if there, if, if you may come from a background where you don't think it's wrong. I want you to know we're going to look at it from God's perspective. And I want you to see that in God's heart, in God's mind, it's wrong. But we're going to see. We're going to make that case today. But more importantly, what I want you to see is that God's grace covers over the sins and the mistakes that we make along the way. Even if you had an abortion. Even if you had an abortion, God lavishes you with his kindness. All he wants is for you to turn to him, come to him, cling to him, and allow his grace to pour over you. Do you need that? Do you need his grace today? You've come to the right place. Today we are going to look at this issue of abortion from God's perspective. And at the end of the message, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how we can be ministers of God's grace, His gospel, in the world that we live in today in this particular area. Now as a side note, I want to say and give credit that this whole series comes from a book by a guy named David Platt. And I want to encourage every one of you to order this book and to read it. We are not going, I'm not going to preach what he writes. I'm going to refer to a few things that he writes, but I think it would be very, very beneficial. If you look at the front cover of the book, it's right there, you see the, the comprehensive title. It says this. You're not supposed to have a title this long, but look at the words. A compassionate call to counter culture in a world of poverty, same-sex marriage, racism, sex slavery, immigration, persecution, abortion, orphans, pornography. My friends, every one of these topics are ripped from today's headlines. 
All we have to do is look at the newsreel from this past week and we see the racism. We see, we see the violence. We see all kinds of things that are happening in our society. And I want us to know as believers, how do we respond to this? How do we live in a culture that is so contrary to the culture that we have within the church that the scriptures create for us? How do we do that? Now our theme verse that I'm going to be bringing up again and again is Philippians 2. I want to encourage you to memorize it. It goes like this, because God tells us how we're to live in this culture. He says, I want you to be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. Does that sound like our generation? Does that sound like our world? In which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out what? The word of life. My friends, we're to shine. It gets darker, we shine brighter. What do we hold out? We hold out the word of life. My friends, there is no solution apart from Christ. There is no solution apart from the word of God. God's word gives us the solution in, the, in our lives. During this series, you will be introduced to various ways that you can get involved. I like to be a person of action, and so what I've done today on this topic, I've invited three ministries to come and be with us. We prayed for them just a moment ago. They will all be in the commons. And what I want to encourage every one of you to do is find out about this ministry, all the ministries. There's one in Akron, one in Canton, uh, and then uh, ICU Mobile goes all over the place, and ICU stands for Image Clear Ultrasound. And so we want you to ask the questions. And here's my desire. My desire as we present different problems and different solutions each week is I want you to walk out saying, man, I could, I could potentially get involved in this area. I could see the gospel working in my life in this particular area. But what I'm not asking you to do is to make a snap decision. Over the next eight weeks, I'm going to ask that you do three things. I'm going to ask that first of all, you listen. Listen intently. Come to church. Listen to the Word of God. Listen to the issues and listen to the solutions. But then also pray. Pray that God would put upon your heart a burden and a passion to be involved in one of these areas um, if you're not involved in any area at all. And then finally act. What I don't want is a knee-jerk reaction. I want a spirit-filled God guiding me saying, hey, I want to be a part of the gospel in this area. And I could see that in my life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look at your truth here in a moment, I pray, Father, that you would use your word to encourage our hearts. I pray, Father, that we would be a people that would shine like stars in, a un in this universe, in this world, as we hold out the word of truth. And Lord, we realize that it is a crooked and depraved generation. We know that sin mars this world beyond recognition. And we know that sin damages what you have created. And Lord, you have a, a, a wonderful ministry of restoration in using your people to be instruments of light, to be instruments of truth, to be the hands and feet of Christ in this world. So help us to see how we need to be a part of that. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Today we're going to look at the problem, we're going to look at the heart of God, and we're going to look at some solutions. First of all, the problem. Now some of the data I'm going to be giving you does come from the book and some of the research that I've done. 
What we know is, uh, what we know is that since Roe v. Wade in 1973, when that was passed, just under 60 million children have been aborted in, in the United States. It is estimated that one out of three women have had an abortion, have had or will have an abortion. On a worldwide scale, 42 million children are terminated every single year. By any estimation, it is a modern-day holocaust that is against those that cannot defend themselves, those that do not have a voice to do so. Now, this is not a new problem. It has been the problem since the beginning of time. If we go way back in the Old Testament, we know that, uh, that not animal sacrifice, uh, human sacrifice, child sacrifice was a common thing. It was a horrendous thing. In fact, it was so much so that, the, that God had to give instructions in Leviticus to his people because his people were actually tempted to sacrifice their children. And this is what he says. He says, the Lord spoke to Moses, Leviticus 20. He spoke to Moses saying, say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Moloch, that was a false god, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will myself set my face against the man and will cut him off from among the people, because he has given one of his children to Moloch to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. Do you think God feels deeply about this issue? God is, he said, I'll set my face against the individual that does this, that sacrifices their children. Now, if you want to understand the culture in which this happened, I would recommend a book series called Gods and Kings by Lynn Austin. It really sets the context of that day and helps you understand that. Now, we look at this and we wonder, well, why would anyone sacrifice their children? Why would they offer them up and it was a burnt sacrifice? Why would they do that? Well, here, here's the answer in short. The Ammonites were the people that brought this belief into play. And they believed that Moloch, their god, was a god of blessing and prosperity. But the requirement for Moloch was that there had to be a child sacrifice in order for him to be pleased. So if you wanted the blessing of Moloch on your family, it was a small price to pay to sacrifice one of your children so that you can have blessings upon your life for the rest of your days. History records that some went as far as taking the charred bones of their child that was sacrificed and they buried it under the front step of their house so that there was a reminder of the blessing that was upon them. It was a superstition. It was a barbaric belief. Now, any one of us would look at that and we say, yeah, that's absolutely barbaric. Who would do that? And yet, my friends, as a nation, we sacrifice our children at the altar of convenience and individual prosperity that takes the form of, I can't afford a child right now. I just can't do that. So therefore, I need to end the life of this child. I beg someone to tell me the difference between the sin of sacrificing a child to Moloch and the sins of what we do today with our own children. Now, please see that this threat is not just in our culture. It's around the world. 
Friends of mine are missionaries with the Tukani people in, in Papua, New Guinea. Now, their names are Kevin and Allison Martin. Kevin and Allison Martin are just an incredible couple. They were the first white people that went into this all-black tribe, and this, they were the first people to learn the language. They had to, it wasn't in written form. Nobody knew it. They had to go in and decipher all the words. They had to make a, 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 an alphabet, and they had to put it in written form. And over the last 20 years, they have seen God do some amazing things in their ministry there and they've seen the chief now have a God walk. I think he's invited God into his stomach because that's the seat of their emotions. So God's in his stomach. He's doing the God walk and the chief is now telling other people about this man who will save their soul. And so it's an amazing thing to hear the stories every time Kevin and Allison come back home. I love listening to their stories. Well, one of the stories that they told was that when they first got there, they realized that there was a tradition of all the women to abort their first child, maybe the second, maybe the third. See, in their tradition, they believed that a woman should be betrothed at the age of 13 or 14. And so uh, right now, Ashley, you would be a wife to somebody in the Tukuni tribe, and she would be betrothed at that age. And of course, soon after betrothal, they would become pregnant. Well, they believed that a woman needed to be older to have the responsibility, so they would go out to the jungle, have the child, and just leave the child to die. They believed that until they accepted the child, it wasn't actually a life, and that the soul of the child did not go into the child until it started to breastfeed. And so they would, in their minds, it was perfectly acceptable. Nobody thought this is weird. Nobody thought that this was murder. Nobody thought that this was, this was accepted amongst the entire tribe. Well, obviously, as the gospel came into this tribe, things started to, they started to be able to teach the truth. But even to this day, this is a practice that they still struggle with on the mission field. So the argument could be made, actually, in our world, that our belief system isn't much different than the Tokeni people. See, Planned Parenthood, as well as many other medical clinics, will say that the child is simply a blob of a tissue. It's just a non-life until the child is born. As long as the child is in the womb, it is not a life. In fact, late-term abortions or partial birth abortions uh, take place because you're partially delivering the blob. You are dissecting it, and then you are, you're just ending this inconvenience at that point. Now, as a believer, I, I look at this, and I'm sure that many of you look at this, and we say, how barbaric can this be? The evidence of the life is there. There's a heartbeat. There's tiny fingers. There's tiny toes. There's a nervous system. There's an intricate blood system. There are brain waves. How could anybody think that? It's not much different than the tokeny people. See, isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious to us? But the reason it's obvious to you is because you have the truth. Here's what I need you to understand. Until we view life from God's viewpoint, His perspective, and we adopt it as our own, we will not know and operate by the proper truth. Unless we operate by God's viewpoint, we will always do, we tend to do what's wrong. So what does God say about this? 
Let's look at Psalm 139. Now, I've asked three ladies to come up and help us to share a little bit of the Word. So I'm going to have them come up at this point, and they're going to read for us. But well, let me set the context as they're coming up. In this psalm, God is giving us a psalm that talks about His working in our life. It is clear from this psalmist that that as David writes this, that God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, that God is uh, all-present. And in this psalm, David asks, asks God to examine his life and reveal things about him. And so what David does is he writes it in six or several stanzas of six verses. And each stanza has a point to it. Now we're going to focus on verses 13 to 16 in a moment. But to set the context, I think it would be good for us to see all six stanzas. Or all three, the three stanzas of six verses. The first stanza is how God knows you. Now as Ashley comes and reads, I'm going to have her step right up to the mic to read it. And as she does this, I want you to look at how God knows us. Take a look at, this is Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem in me behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So, Ashley, thank you for coming and helping out. She is due pretty soon. Notice that in this passage, God knows all about our actions. He knows all about our attitudes. He knows about our activities, our aptitudes. He knows everything about our life. Now we move on to the second stanza where God shows that he is with you. So I'm going to have Lynn come. Now, Lynn just had a baby, so congratulations, Lynn. She's going to read the next stanza. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Thank you. Now notice in this, the psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? And the answer is, nowhere. I can't go anywhere. It doesn't matter if I go way uh, up to the heights or down to the depths. It doesn't matter. There is no darkness with God. We cannot flee from God. We cannot hide from God. God knows our presence at all times. And now the final stanza that we're going to focus in on here is God, how God powerfully created you and I. So I'm going to have Sally now, Sally, don't be afraid because I know it's contagious. We got a pregnant woman there. A woman just had a baby, but we know you're not even married yet, so it's okay. <laughs> Verses 13 to 18. For you have formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. 
Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Thank you, Sally. I want to point out three things from this stanza where we focus in on the creativeness of God. First of all, David, I think because he had been talking about darkness, he goes, his mind goes to the womb. And he goes to the place of understanding where life originated from. And he starts off, and truth number one is that what we see is that God is the author of life. He says in the very first verse, verse 14, I praise you for I am fear, I'm sorry, verse 13, for you form me in my inner parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. God is the one that crafted the individual. He is the one that is uh, the, the designer. Now he uses the word you here. He says, you form my inner parts. You knit me together. In the Hebrew language, it's used in an emphatic way. So what David is saying is, you, O oh God, most definitely, without any doubt, created my inner parts. You definitely, O oh God, are the one who had the wisdom that knit me together. Now, the point that David is making is simple. He is saying that God is the author of life. Now, it pays the reason if God is the author of life, he is the authority on life. He is, on the, he is the authority of when life is taken, he is, the, the, he is the authority of when life is given. And so this is what David helps us understand in these verses. Now David tries to wrap his mind around how his, his body was formed, how his brain was formed, how his heart was formed, how all of his bodily functions were knit together in his mother, were put together and knit together in his mother's womb. And it's interesting that he goes... There's a sense of overwhelming praise just in the creation thought. When you think of a child being created, he starts going into a place of praise because in the very next verse where we find our next truth, he says, I praise you. I praise you. This is the natural response when we understand that God is the author of life. Now here's the second truth that we learn in these verses, that God uses creation to set us apart. Take a look at verse 14. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The word fearful shows intentionality of God. God intentionally made us. It says that he wonderfully made us. The word made can also be translated set apart. So we are fearfully, intentionally, wonderfully set apart by God. The implication of this is profound because it indicates that God has an intention and a purpose for each individual. In the creation process, there is no mistake. And so what God does is he takes that individual and he has all their days ordained. He has a plan that he wants to fulfill in their life. Now, yes, the purpose of God could be deterred. How can it be? It can be deterred by the humanness of man, the sinfulness of man in ending that life prematurely. It could be the person that is born who God has crafted them to do one thing, but in their hearts and their rebellion, they go away from God and they do what they want. The thing is that God doesn't make us fulfill his will. He doesn't make us. He wants us to fulfill his will. 
Now, what's interesting in this idea that God's creation has set us apart, I want you to note one other thing. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said this, Let us, talking about the Trinity, Godhead, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our what? In our image. In our image, in our likeness. Now, from a strategic standpoint, I want you to think of this from the enemy. There is no greater assault by the enemy than to destroy the image of God. And if in us is the stamp of the image of God, the enemy wants to do everything he can to destroy that image. He will start in the womb and he will start, continue after the womb to, to mar the image of man. And some of us are alive, but we are marred in our image because we're not viewing ourselves as the image of God. This is why God says if you take a life in Genesis chapter 9, you are, it's going to cost you. Notice what he says. In Genesis 9, I'm just reading this verse. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man's blood he shall sh uh, be shed. For God made man in his what? Own image. See, the image of God is important that we understand. To destroy life is a direct assault on God and his image. Now here's the third truth we gain from our passage, and we see this in verse 15 and 16. God sees life beginning at the moment of conception. Look at verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in, the, in secret. He's calling the womb the place of secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. This is all a metaphor for the womb. And he says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Now the indication here, unformed substance, not seeable with the eye. So it's talking about from the very embryonic stage of life that God saw it. He's orchestrating it. And he says, in your, books, uh, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, yet when, when as yet I was not none, none of them. <clears throat> Yet there was none of them before I was born, in other words. So God is the one that orchestrated life right from the embryonic stage of life, from the moment of conception. Now we know in Psalm 51, David says this, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. From the moment the egg and the sperm met, this is the point in life, this is the point where life began. David Platt, in his book, points out how vital it is to answer this question. Is the unformed substance a person? One man put it this way. If the unborn person is not a human being, no justification for abortion is necessary. No justification. It would be perfectly acceptable. However, if the unborn is a human person, there is no justification for abortion that is adequate if it is a human person. And thus, this is where counterculture comes in. Because we see this flying right in the face of our world. Last week, we celebrated the founding of our country. And I played a video about how our founding fathers, a lot of things were picked from the, the, the Word of God that helped develop the founding of our nation. We know that to be true. That doesn't mean that all the founding fathers were believers. But it's interesting. Back then, I believe for many people, the starting point of their culture was God. Not today. 
The starting point for our culture is man. It's what does man say? What does man want? How does it affect man? A woman's body is her own, so she has rights over that body. And the logic goes, after all, this tissue that's within my body is mine, so therefore I can determine what happens to it. And this is the argument that we are faced with. But my friends, when we look at Psalm 139, and if we had time to look at so many other passages, it would be very clear, it is very clear, that abortion is a direct slap in the face of God and His authority on life. And to assault God's work in creation is to assault and hinder the beginning relationship with man at the unborn level. Because that's why God creates us. He wants relationship with him. So how do we deal with this? How do we act as the body of Christ? Do we become militant and say, yes, I believe in life and I am going to protest and I am going to march and I am going to, even if I have to uh, uh, assault somebody, I, will I do that? Absolutely not. All we got to do is look at Christ and see the example of how we minister for the gospel. Let me give you three things that we can do in our ministry. Number one, we operate, live and operate in support of life. Just live and operate in support of life. The reason why there's different ministries here, they're good ministries. They're, they're tactful ministries. They're godly ministries that are taking a good approach to promoting life. I think we are a part of life by voting life. We need to think about those things. It is also necessary that we view our own life as precious to God. Here's the number two thing that we do in our ministry. We live and operate as the good news to man. We live and operate as that good news. In a moment, we're going to listen to a story of a woman who is a very successful interior designer. Very successful. I've looked at her website this week. It's incredible stuff. But we're going to look at the story behind the person. And we're going to see this woman and how God reached her. And how God used different people that were the instrument of Christ. They were godly influences. They were Christ-like influences that helped influence her to bring her to the place of forgiveness, the place of healing, the place of restoration. And here's the final thing. We have a ministry in that we live and operate under God's grace. We live under God's grace. We need to know that God has stamped a value on each and every person. And I'm saying that because there are some people that live here or are living their life under condemnation. Here's how you'll know if you're living under condemnation. Fill in this blank. I believe God sees me as blank. I believe that God sees me as blank. How would you fill that in? Would your first thought be failure, disappointment, uh, not important to God? If that's the case, then you are living under condemnation. And what God wants you to understand is that you are a precious life. You are a precious child. And when you have Christ in your life, he gives you meaning. And he says you are his child, you are the light of the world, and that you are dearly loved. And that's how he wants you to operate. Watch his story and allow it to impact your heart before we prepare to take communion together.
wanted to be a wife and a mother that was different than the wife that I had seen my mother be and give my children a different childhood that I had. And so I had spent my years dreaming of what I thought a marriage should be and what a husband should be and one who would protect me and guide me and um, love me. I grew up not knowing what a family was. My mother's identity came from men. I saw men come in and out of our home. We were sworn to secrecy. Our house as a child was very chaotic. We never knew if my dad was drinking when he came home, if and when he came home. My dad raped me at the age of six and throughout um, my life up until about the time I was 16. And you know, everything about my childhood, it was just, um, it was lonely, it was, it was hard, it was not what a child deserved to have. I continued to follow in the life of finding men who were abusive, what I knew, abusive um, alcoholics, but all I wanted was to be loved, and for me, being loved was having a sexual relationship, and um, I was willing to do anything to have that. I left my husband and my children for another man. It was very hard. Um, you know, I learned behavior. I was doing all of the things that I had promised and wanted never to do um, to my children. I was repeating that behavior. I felt dirty, I felt shameful, I felt um, guilty. I didn't want the life that I had. I wanted to be um, different. I would say, okay, Lord, you know, I'm gonna just trust you and I'm gonna share the desires of my heart with you. And we're just gonna walk this out because you're all I've got. That night I asked Jesus into my life. He was my only hope because the course I was taking was a crash course and I needed him. And this was in February. Well, in March, April, I met a man and I just knew he was from God. By August, Jay and I were engaged. We'd bought a beautiful home together. And he loved me and he loved my children. God spoke to me one day as clear as clear can be. And he said, he said to me, he goes, how can I heal you? if you're not willing to heal yourself. I gave him his ring back. And um, I told him, I said, God has spoken to me personally. And um, I have to trust him. And I have to let him be um, the husband 
that I've never had, the father that I never had. I have to let him provide for me because otherwise our marriage would never work. I needed someone that I could trust, that I could share my deepest, darkest secrets with. I had started Christian counseling with a, um, an inner healing process with an amazing woman named Joyce. There were days where we would just pray and we wouldn't say anything. And there were other days where we would go through step by step as if peeling an onion and just revealing and in, in, um, in each layer that came off, the closer I knew I was to a new life. It was easier for me to share what my mother had done or my father had done or my ex-husband had done. But it was harder for me to share what I had done. One day I showed up um, for our counseling session and I went in and said, okay, Joyce, I've forgiven everybody, you know, my mother for this, this, and this, my father for this, this, and this, and I said, I'm done. I am ready to go. I am ready to continue my walk with Jesus. And um, she just sat there, and she sat there. She goes, and she prayed, and she said, there's still more work to be done. And I wanted to run, and I wanted to go, and I couldn't because I knew what my choice was. I could either go back to the life I had or to continue on this walk. And uh, I said, okay, I've got one more thing to tell you. And um, she just sat there and prayed. And I said, my senior year of high school, I had an abortion. All I wanted was to be loved, and that's all I knew to do. And she just sat, and she sat, and she sat, and she prayed. And uh, I thought, okay, why can't I leave? And um, she just continued to sit there, and I said, okay, this is it. I'm going to tell you one last thing, and I'm finished. After I left um, the boys and their father for the other man, I said, I got pregnant. And I said, I couldn't have that child because um, of all the guilt and shame that I already carried. She just didn't say anything. She just sat there and prayed. And I thought, okay, Lord, how would she know? How could nobody knew um, that there was one last thing? And uh, I realized that God knew and he wanted me pure, that he didn't want to let me go. And so I just looked at her and I said, Joyce, I said, I had one more abortion. And I said, it wasn't very long ago. I said, it was with with Jay 
And um, I said, but the hardest part was I knew Jesus then and I didn't turn to him. And I said, and what made it harder was it was uh, Jay's only child. And we just sat and we prayed. And I looked up and my greatest fear was that she was going to be gone and Jesus would be gone. And yet they were persistent and they knew at that point that there was nothing else and I knew at that point that I was free. I walked out of her office that day and I no longer lived in a great world. I lived in a very black and white world. The sky was bluer, the grass was greener, the birds sang. And it was as if I walked into a whole new world. And I knew that day who I was in Him and that He loved me. And there was no more guilt and shame that it was gone. He was now carrying that for me. And I was now capable Um, being the wife and the mother that he, and the person that he created me to be. I had shared my secrets and all that I had with Jay and he knew everything about me too. And so there were no more lies, there were no more secrets, there was um, a new relationship and um, two and a half years later, I married Jay. And it's, we've been together for 17 years. I couldn't have a marriage of, in a relationship of 17 years if God wasn't in it. I wasn't humanly possible of accomplishing that on my own or being the mother that I am to my boys today. My greatest goal in life is one day to stand before him and for, and for him to look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant for whom I am pleased. Hurry home because you have three precious children waiting on you. I am Lisa Luby Ryan, and I thank God every single day that I am second.